Now, three months ago, we came to chapter 2 in the book of Colossians as a church. If you're new here, I'll, I'll just tell you what we do. We normally study the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And we happen to be at this moment in history in the book of Colossians. And three months ago, as I said, we came to Colossians chapter 2, and we came to verse 1, and it just grabbed us as a church. This concept that's given to us in verse 1, it just grabbed our corporate heart and subsequently our individual hearts. And so now for the better part of of three months, we've been in this theme that is given to us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, and and that is praying for others. And we're going to continue on in that theme for several weeks to come. I don't know how long. I've got news for you. I I don't really make the decisions around here. I I hope that you know that. You you know, my title is senior pastor and all these things and and whatever. That doesn't mean anything. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of this church. Amen? This is his church. We're his people. He's our shepherd and we're his little sheepies. And so he makes the decisions. And and I I hope you would know that that we pray and fast before we study a book. We ask the Lord, Lord, where do you want us to be? And then if the Holy Spirit begins to guide us in a certain direction, we say, okay, Lord, we want to follow you. We don't want to get ahead of you. We don't want to lag behind you. We don't want to turn to the right or to the left. We just want to follow you, Lord. And he's been leading us on this wonderful journey of discovering and learning what it means to pray for others. Amen? And it was prompted by this verse. Let's read it together. We haven't read it in in several weeks. The Apostle Paul writing says in verse 1 of chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for all those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Now, when Paul writes this, he's in prison, mind you. And he's in prison some uh, hundreds, a couple thousand miles away. He's in Rome, and they're in modern-day Turkey. Now, he's never been to this region where they are. He's never been there. He's never seen these people. He does not know them personally. And he's in a tough circumstance. He's in prison. And he's not in prison because he was bad. He's in prison because he was good. He was preaching the gospel, and he's in prison for his faith. But something happened in the heart of Paul where he begins to pray for these people that he doesn't even know. And it's just not just normal prayer. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I've had on your behalf. And that word in the Greek is agon, and we'll talk about it in just a moment. But do you remember a few months ago when we read this, and do you remember the Lord just grabbing us? I mean, it happened to me. I hope it happened to you. Really, I'll just be so forthright and honest with you. The Lord just kind of grabbed my heart and just said, you're too selfish. And you know, the Lord and your wife are the only ones that could really say that. You know what I mean? And when they say it, you just go, okay, I, I understand. Tell me what to do. And, and if the Lord said it to me, he might have said it to some of you. And, and so he said, I want to teach you guys as a church to struggle in prayer for others. And so we started to do that. And he, and he began to instruct us in prayer. And we've had a wonderful time growing together in prayer. And it kind of led up to, it segued into Easter, didn't it? And we were so excited about Easter because we were all pumped up on prayer. And remember the week before Easter, we were having prayer meetings every morning at 6 a.m. And there's over 100 people here every morning just crying out to the Lord for people to get saved. And a bunch of people got saved on Easter. And little kids and, and old grandmas and grandpas and whole families gave their life to the Lord on Easter. And people came back to the Lord and people were healed and set free. And as a congregation, we sort of took a corporate breath and just went, whew. Wow, thanks, Lord. That was awesome. And and it kind of wore us out spiritually. You know, a lot of spiritual fervency and effort went into that. And that's good and that's right. And I think that last week, the Lord gave us a little bit of rest when we heard the testimonies and the praise reports. And now I think the Lord wants to give us a second wind. A second wind. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever be into running or anything like that? And you're running just when you just feel dead tired, you get that second wind. And it's a biochemical, physical, physiological thing that happens in your body, I think. But you get that second wind, and and it takes you to the finish line. But spiritually speaking, I think the Lord wants to give us corporately a a second wind for this prayer thing that he's doing. Because the Christian walk isn't a sprint. You know, it's a marathon. 
It's a long run. It's a distance race. You know what I mean? It's not a sprint. You got to run hard and you got to win. You got to run to win, so to speak, but it's a long distance thing. And so is this prayer season that the Lord has us in. And so I think he wants to give us a, a second win today. And I think that at this point, corporately, we'll set up an Ebenezer. You remember Ebenezer? Not Ebenezer Scrooge from the movie or the storybook, but the Ebenezer in the Old Testament. When they got brought to the promised land, they set up an Ebenezer, a memorial stone. And what they said is, thus far has the Lord brought us. And it really reminded them of two things. The good things the Lord had done up until this point, and the fact that God would make good on his promises from here forward. And whenever they begin to doubt that, they look back at that Ebenezer, that stone that they set up, and they say, wait a minute, why would we doubt the Lord? He has been faithful thus far. It's a logical conclusion that he's going to be faithful to the end. Amen? And so I think the Lord wants to speak that to our church this morning. I think what's happened in our hearts uh, corporately is that there's a new uh, little bed of grass that sprung up that is our corporate prayer life and even our individual prayer lives. And it's like there's good soil in the hearts. The Holy Spirit has broken up fallow ground and there's good soil and there's fresh little just shoots of grass coming out. And there's no weeds, no funky stuff and just fresh and well watered and it's just beautiful, you know? But it's delicate. It's delicate, and the enemy of your soul would love to come and snatch that away. You know what I'm saying? Jesus said that he would do that. That that when the word was sown in the hearts of men and women, that the enemy would love to come and snatch it away, and that it would get choked out by the cares of the world. But I think the Lord wants to remind us today of what he's taught us about prayer, give you all that vision that there's a fresh lawn of prayer growing in our hearts and that the Lord wants it to take deep root and he wants it to just get thick and full and healthy and fruitful. And so in the weeks to come, he's going to fertilize what's already begun. He's going to water what what the Holy Spirit is already doing in our hearts. And I I think we're going to see greater fruit, more fruit than we've already seen. But I want us to remember, as we talk about prayer here again this morning, that the thrust of the Christian life is not what you can do for the Lord. That's not the thrust of it. The thrust of it is what the Lord has done for you. It's all about Jesus and his mercy and his grace and his cross and the fact that we were sinners, but we've been saved. The fact that we were going to hell, but he snatched us out of it, and he's given us all the promises of heaven. It's about the Lord and his work and his glory. And it's about his faithfulness and his promises and his power to bring those things to pass. It's not really about us. Amen? It's about the Lord and the blessings he wants to pour into your life. But having said that, let me balance that with this fact. Prayer is the conduit through which so many of the blessings of God flow into our lives. Prayer is that conduit, you know? Because prayer, at the most basic level, is just talking to your Jesus. It's just talking to your Heavenly Father that you love so much. It's just sitting down saying, Pops, here's what's going on. Lord, here's my concerns. Here's my burdens. Here's my fears. Here's what I'm excited about. Lord, here's my dreams. Here's what's going on with my friends. Here's what's going on in my physical body and with my emotions and in my spiritual life. Here's what's going on in my community and my church and my nation. And it's a conversation with you and the one whom you love and who is madly in love with you. And it's through that communication that a relationship blossoms, you understand. You ever seen a couple, you go out to dinner or something, you see a couple sitting at dinner together and they've been married a long time and they're just eating their food and they just don't even talk to each other the whole time and they're just looking around. I don't know about you, but I'm married. I'm, I'm in love with my woman. But I, we, sometimes we go to restaurants and I notice some, some couples and it just seems like that communication is just kind of fizzled. And I pray, Lord, don't ever let that happen with me and my wife. I love this woman. I want this relationship to, to multiply and to blossom and to bear fruit. And that happens as we communicate, you know what I mean? When we lay in bed and we look in each other's eyes and we just talk about our hearts and our kids and our fears and our hopes and our dreams and all those things, it's just like a melding happens of us. And so it is when we pray. That's what prayer is. You know, we're the bride of Christ, the church is, and he's a bridegroom. And when we talk to him, we come before his very face, so to speak. And and there's just a melding that takes place of our hearts with the heart of the Lord. A a growth in intimacy, and we fall more in love with him. And isn't that what we want? 
I mean, Jesus didn't die on the cross so you could be religious, man. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you could come to church and say, I did some time and I clocked in and now I'm out of here. That's stupid. He didn't bleed for that. He bled for love. God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, he gave Christ to die for us. And so prayer is that way, that we experience more of the love of the Father and fall more in love with him. And so the Lord is going to move us on. We're going to continue in this thing of prayer. Move us on in prayer. The cloud hasn't departed yet. We're going to camp out for a while longer. But again, I want to set up the Ebenezer. I want to stir us up by way of reminder. You know, I take my my cue here from uh, the Apostle Peter. And in his second letter there to the churches in Asia Minor, he wrote to them in, in 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2, and he said, I'm writing to you, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand. And so I want to do with us this morning as your pastor. I, I want to stir up our sincere minds. I mean, we try to remember what the Lord has spoken to us, don't we? But if we're going to be honest, there's so much that we forget. And we've had eight lessons on prayer so far. And, and I think the Holy Spirit just wants to stir us up by way of reminder that we could set a marker and move ahead with a second wind. And so here's what we've learned so far. Eight lessons. Number one, we talked about struggling for others in prayer. And I'm just going to mention them, and then we're going to go through and recap them. And the next week we'll move ahead. But number one, our first lesson was struggling for others in prayer. Secondly, we talked about the moral responsibility of prayer. And then the Lord moved us into this wonderful teaching that he uh, gives us in the Gospels on importunity in prayer. An old funny word that we'll discover what it means this morning if you don't already know. And then in part four, we talked about the fact that prayer changes things. In part five, we talked uh, and heard from the Lord about overturning hindrances in our lives to effective prayer. In part six, we talked about having an attitude of thanksgiving in prayer. In part seven, we talked about listening in prayer. That was a fun one. You remember that one? And then in part nine, the last time that we talked, we talked about prayer and fasting. I just want to recap those for a minute, and that's all we'll do today. It's just let the Lord stir us up and remind us of a few things so that we can move ahead in this thing of prayer. Number one, struggling for others in prayer. We get that concept, as I said, from Colossians 2 verse 1, where that word struggle there is the Greek word agon. And it means to labor, to strive. It's where we get our English word agony. But agony for us has all these negative connotations, you know, the agony of defeat. And that's not what is meant here. Remember, we called our series uh, the agony of victory. It's a picture of the competitor who is striving for the victory, striving for first place, uh, striving for perfection. And that's the way that it was used. And it's, it's struggling in our prayer lives for someone else. Not just a lackadaisical, oh, Lord, bless them. You know what I mean? And we do this bumper sticker thing here at Reality Carpentry, and we all put bumper stickers on our cars, and that's not to advertise. Look, we're full. We don't need to advertise. That's not why that is. It's to knit our hearts together in prayer. Remember, if you see that on someone's car or something else, you're supposed to pray for that person. And if they see you, they're praying for you. And sometimes I do really good at it. I mean, I always pray when I see him, but sometimes, you know, I, I just kind of cheese out. And I see the Reality Carpenteria sticker and I go, oh Lord, bless him. And my wife, she's in the passenger seat and she just looks at me like, you cheese ball. Don't you listen to your own sermons? And she just begins to pray for him just on a deeper level and just struggle for him just for a couple minutes, you know. But she just prays and she takes the time to labor on behalf of someone else. Now, now that's what Paul is doing here. He's never seen these people. He's never met them. He's in prison. He's in a bad circumstance himself. But he's struggling in prayer for their well-being. And do you remember that we discovered three reasons why Paul had that heart attitude? The first reason was because he had a tremendous love for God. And the reason he loved the Lord so much was because the Lord first loved him. Amen? And remember, he was a Christian killer. And he was on his way to Damascus to kill some Christians. And he met the risen Lord on the road that day. And the Lord knocked him down. And he changed his life. And he changed his name. And he went from a Christian killer to a Christian maker. Paul the Apostle. 
And, and he was so overwhelmed at the grace of God and the forgiveness of Jesus, the love of Christ, that having experienced that love, he just overflowed in his heart for a love for the Lord. Now, here's what happens. When you love the Lord, you will begin to love others. I mean, they go hand in hand. They're never apart. If you have a sincere love for God because of his incredible love for you, you will begin to love other people. And that's where the Apostle Paul was. That's what the Lord is wanting to do in our hearts. That we would so be devoted to this thing called prayer, which is a labor, by the way. Prayer's not easy. I don't know if you know that. You know how sometimes communication is rough? You say something to your wife and you mean something good and she goes, huh? And you go, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. What I meant was, da, 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 da. You mean what? Wait, 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 wait. What I'm trying to say is, da, 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 da. Oh. I see. You, you know, sometimes communication is difficult. Well, there's no misunderstanding with the Lord. That's an imperfect analogy to show you that even in the human realm, you got to work on communication. And so in the heavenly realm, there's a little effort that's got to take place. Paul said he struggled in prayer on behalf of others. He loved the Lord, and the outflow was he loved others to the point that he was willing to invest time in praying for them. And if you find yourself getting irritated with people, in conflict with people around you, always bummed out and bitter and backbiting and those things, you know what? You just need to fall more in love with Jesus. That's the solution to that. You need to take care of the vertical relationship and the horizontals will fall in line afterwards. But you just need to get yourself in the place of receiving in a tangible way that love of the Lord and you'll fall more in love with him. And it's amazing who you can love in the physical realm when you're in love with Jesus. Amen? So Paul had a tremendous love for God and it spawned in his heart a love for others and so he's able to pray for them. The other reason that he was willing to do this is because he loved God's truth. I mean, he just loved the word of God and the precepts of God and the promises of God and he didn't want anyone to miss out on them. You know what I mean? I mean, that should happen in our hearts that we read the Bible and we receive it with faith. I mean, we read it and we say, that's the word of God and that settles it. I, I believe that. And then we say, man, I don't want anybody to miss out on this. I don't want my family to miss out on the promises of God. I don't want my coastline, my community, my church, my coworkers, my schoolmates. I don't want my enemies to miss out on the power and the promises of God. He had such a tremendous love for God's truth. He held it in such high regard. They didn't want anyone to miss out. And so he prayed those precepts for others. And the third thing is he understood the power of prayer. Every time prayer is presented in the Bible is presented in the context of changing the way things are. That is how prayer is presented in the Bible. It changes the way things are. In Isaiah 38, King Hezekiah was going to die. The Lord sent the prophet to tell him, hey, dude, you're going to die. Get your house in order. And he said, I don't want to die. And he went and he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said, okay, I'll give you 15 more years. I mean, prayer just changes the way things are. Every time the Bible speaks about it, it speaks about it in that context. And Jesus said in Matthew 21, 22, whatever you ask, believing, you shall receive. Whatever you ask, believing, you shall receive. And, and so we got to approach the Lord with faith. We've got to understand the power of prayer and that it changes things. And now that you've seen those kids in Africa, you know, that we're feeding with uh, financial stuff, what have you started to pray for them? I mean, I think that prayer is so much more powerful than money. Don't you? I mean, we say that and we all go, of course prayer is more powerful than money. And yet oftentimes we just, you know, well, money will take care of it. But what if we prayed, Amen. So Paul prayed for others because he had a tremendous love for God, which birthed in his heart a love for others. He, he had a passion for the word and the truth of God. He wanted to see people walking in those and experiencing those. And then lastly there, he just understood the power of prayer, that when he prayed from his prison cell, stuff would happen in Laodicea and in Colossae and in that Lycus Valley in Turkey. And we finished that first sermon by asking this question. Is there anyone that you are passionate about other than yourself? 
And that's where the Lord began to rattle us, you know what I mean? Are you concerned about anybody other than yourself? Are you battling in prayer for someone else? And we've had so many testimonies over the last several weeks that, man, I heard what the Lord said. And I finally got over myself. I stopped praying for myself. I started laboring in prayer for others. And the Lord is just taking care of my gig. I mean, he's so faithful to do that. Because Christianity at its core is meant to be selfless. And people at their core are selfish. And so it's an overturning, you know. It's an overturning of of that sinful nature. And when we get out of ourselves and into others and begin to labor for their well-being and pray for them and for their blessings, the Lord just does incredible things in your life. Amen? The Lord is so good that way. He's so awesome. The second thing that we talked about was the moral responsibility of prayer. Do you remember this one? There is a a degree to which you and I are morally responsible for one another. Now, I don't want to put a trip on you all. Remember, Christianity is not about you. It's about God and what he can do. But he's invited us into what he can do. We're told in the book of Corinthians, I can't remember chapter and verse, chapter 3, verse 9, I believe, that we are fellow workers with the Lord. He's invited us into it. And he's given us, he's entrusted us with, a degree of responsibility for one another. He's given us the command to pray for others. 1 Timothy 4.1 First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And so when the Bible talks about prayer, the thrust of it is really us praying for others. Now honestly, the the scales are usually tipped the other way, aren't aren't they? In most of our lives, we pray about ourselves so much. And that's not a sin, that's not a wrong to pray for yourself. But, But when you begin to see, well, I'm responsible for more than myself, we're the body of Christ, we're knit together, we're linked together. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. And we begin to see that I I have a God-given concern and responsibility for others, and and we begin to tip that scale. It gets radical. It gets wonderful. So praying for others is a a wonderful command. Praying for others is effective, James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So praying for others is an awesome command. It's effective. It accomplishes things. But then we're reminded in James 4, 2, you do not have because you do not ask. In Matthew 7, 7, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. So if we're commanded to pray for others and prayer changes things, and when we don't ask, we don't have, it becomes clear that we have a moral responsibility to pray for others. And that's not a trip, that's a privilege. That, that's not funky, some funky religious weight I want to put upon you. That's an honor designed by God to rattle us out of selfishness. It's wonderful. I mean, isn't one of the most awesome things that Jesus does for us is set us free from self? Is it just me? Is it just me that loves to be free from me? I mean, that's one of the most awesome things that the Lord does in our life as we grow in Him. The idea of praying for others is kind of like this. What if you saw somebody, you're, you're walking down a dark alley, and, and you see somebody being assaulted? At that moment, you know that what you choose to do or not do will affect the outcome of their life at that moment. I mean, it will directly affect their well-being, what you decide to do or not do. And so it is in the spiritual realm through prayer. When we decide to pray for a group of people or a person or persons or not pray, there will be a direct outcome in their lives from our choice. I mean, that's radical. It's wonderful. It's awesome. We all ought to have this stirring in our hearts of, okay, killer. I want to pray for others, and I want them to pray for me. Amen? Remember Mark chapter 9 and the demonized boy? Mark chapter 9 and the demonized boy. This father brings his son to the apostles, and he's demonized. He's tormented. He says to the apostles, cast this demon out. And they try and they can't do it. And the Lord thankfully comes and he does it. And the apostles say, Jesus, what happened? We've done it before. We couldn't do it this time. And Jesus said, this kind only comes out by prayer. And some manuscripts add fasting. This kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Meaning, if they had been cultivating a lifestyle of prayer and fasting, 
They would have been effective to see this young man delivered from torment. Now, people, we just got to be real. There are young people in our community on this coastline who are tormented. I mean, they're tormented. And don't we, as the representatives of Jesus Christ, don't we want to be prayed up that we can be effective here on the coastline? Don't we want to be cultivating a lifestyle of praying and fasting so that when we are confronted with overwhelming needs, we can combat them with supernatural means? I mean, church, that's who we want to be. That's who God has made us to be. And the reason is, is because throughout history and throughout the Bible, God chooses to work through people, not independent of them. God wants to do wonderful things through your life. The Lord is so good. He's so powerful. The third thing that we learned is importunity in prayer. Go to Luke 18, if you would. Luke 18, go very quickly. Because if you notice, we're on point three out of nine. Luke 18. Maybe this is the most memorable uh, lesson of them all in our minds. It's wonderful the way that the Lord really ministered this to us. And, And we won't belabor the point. But Jesus here... Verse 1 sets it up for us in Luke 18. It says, Now Jesus was telling them, that is to his disciples, a parable. To show that, here's the reason why he's telling them this, at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. They ought to pray and not lose heart. And so look at the parable. A a parable is a way to illustrate something, to make it understandable. Now look at the parable he gives them, verse 2. Jesus said, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. Do me justice, in other words. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow is bothering me, I'll give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. Now he draws a contrast. Now, shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And he will, do, and he will delay long, or, and will he delay long over them? Rhetorical question, the answer being no. Verse 8, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, that's a parable by contrast. It's an illustration by contrast. Here's what I mean. God is not like the unjust judge, is he? I mean, God is the righteous judge. He's the just judge. This guy's the unjust judge, and he's just annoyed by this woman, and so he says, ah, fine already. You know how you do that with your five-year-old? Your five-year-old is just, finally you go, okay, just eat it. I don't care. Eat 20 pounds of sugar. (laughs) Did that with my kid yesterday, and we paid for it at bedtime. But the little bugger, he just wore me out. See, I'm like the unjust judge. But God is not like the unjust judge. He'll bring about justice speedily for his elect who cry to him day and night, who cultivate that lifestyle of prayer, of communication with the Lord. Right? God is not like that, but prayer is like that. God is not like that judge, but prayer that prevails is like that. It's importune. In the King James Version, it says, because of her importunity. It's an old English word that I just love. It means this. To be urgent or persistent in asking or demanding. Insistent. Refusing to be denied. Annoyingly urgent or persistent. It means to insist with persistence. And Jesus teaches here in Luke 18 and in Luke chapter 11 that that's how we're to pray. We're to ask, yes, but we're also to seek, yes, but we're also to knock. I mean, we're to keep on keeping on in prayer. We're to press in. We're to continually bring it before the Lord. God is not like the unjust judge, but prayer is like that. Was there something that you started to pray for just a few months ago when you got excited or even years ago? 
man, unless the Lord has told you that's not my will, then pick that thing up and begin to pray. We've got to be importune, and there's two very basic reasons why the Lord calls us to do that. Number one is character development. Number two is the reality of the battle. The Lord calls us to continually pray because as long as we're communing in Him, He can develop our character. He could refine us. He can speak to us. He begins to change us from the inside out. You know what I mean? And if you're always coming before the Lord, He's always got opportunity to do a work in your life. And so He commands importunity because it, it, it works some character development in our life. But secondly, remember this very important point. Prayer is engaging in the battle. If you don't believe that there's a spiritual battle happening in the spiritual realm for the well-being of men and women, then you don't believe the Bible, and I don't know why you would be here today. I mean, here's your opportunity to get up and leave. This is just dumb if you don't believe the Bible. The Bible says that we don't wage war against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and forces of wickedness in high places. There's a spiritual battle going on, and the moment we start to pray, we enter into the spiritual battle. And a battle by nature requires persistence and perseverance and pressing in and pounding and pushing. You understand? And we illustrated that with Daniel chapter 10. When Daniel began to pray, and the angel doesn't come for three weeks, and the angel says, the moment you begin to pray, I was dispatched for heaven. But I was detained by the prince of Persia. In other words, there was a spiritual battle happening in the spiritual realm. But because Daniel persevered in prayer for three weeks, the answer finally arrived. But the moment he started to pray, that battle just began to wage and to rage. You understand that? You start to pray for kids in our community, you're going to be in the battle. You start to pray for households to get saved, you're going to get in that battle. You don't, you're just on the sidelines. And, and quite frankly, that's a bummer of a place to be as a Christian. I mean, you just miss out on so much of the power and presence and working of God if you choose to live your Christian life on the sidelines. But the moment you say, that's it, I'm praying for people. You step into the battle, and you got to persevere. you got to persist. you got to be importuned because it is a battle. And prayer that prevails sees the victory of the cross manifest in their presence, and prayer is like that. The Lord is so good to respond to prayer. Point number four, prayer changes things. I'm not going to belabor this point. You remember the story. Exodus 32, uh, God's people Israel were in a whole world of trouble. They made the golden calf. They were performing sexual immorality around it, and they were worshiping this golden calf, saying, it brought us out of Egypt. And the Lord said, step back, Mo, I'm going to kill him. I mean, the Lord said that. He said, Mo, move, I'm going to kill the people. And in his righteousness and because of his standard, he would have been justified in doing so. But Mo said, Lord, just have mercy on your people. Lord, would you just spare your people? And it says there in Exodus 32 that the Lord changed his mind. That the Lord said, all right, Mo, since you asked for mercy, and I'm a merciful God, slow to anger, but abounding in loving kindness. You prayed, you asked, I will do it. And he spared the people. I mean, prayer changes things. We can pray this Thursday on the National Day of Prayer here at 6 a.m. And we can see changes in our community and in our nation as we pray. It's biblical. If you don't believe it, here's your chance. Leave. Contrast that with Ezekiel 22, where once again the people were in trouble and the Lord said, I'm bringing judgment. And we're told in Ezekiel 22, verses 9 through 31, that the Lord looked for a man that would stand in the gap. He looked for someone who would stand in the gap and on their behalf ask the Lord for mercy and there was none found. And so he delivered his judgment and was totally just and righteous in doing so. God would be totally just to bring judgment and he is just as just when someone asks for mercy and he responds. When there was someone to pray, mercy came. When there was nobody to pray, there was no mercy in that instance. Don't you think we need to pray for our community? Don't you think we need to ask God for mercy for our nation? I mean, it changes things. God is so good to be merciful. Point number five, we're getting there, people. 
Point number five, that lesson was about overturning hindrances to effective prayer. Now, effective prayer requires these four things. Faith, obedience, right motives, and God's will. Effective prayer is praying with faith. I mean, that's a no-brainer. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.6. Those who come to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. In James chapter 1, we're told, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask the Lord, and the Lord will give. But let that man ask without doubting. If he asks with doubt in his heart, let that man expect that he will receive nothing from the Lord. I mean, if you don't believe the Lord, why should the Lord do anything? In Nazareth, Jesus did not do many miracles because of their disbelief. It's not that he was unable. But what an insult. God, you're the faithful God of the universe that made everything, and I don't believe you. You think the Lord's going to go, awesome, I'll do whatever you ask. No. Matthew 22, 21, or 21, 22, actually. Anything that you ask believing, you shall receive. Got to have faith. And so we talked about if there's unbelief in our hearts, the Lord needs to overturn that. Got to be obedient. You know what I mean? It's silly to be walking in, in, in total rebellion to God and say, God, bless my life. He wants to bless your life, but he will not bless what he has already condemned in his word. He will not bless in your life what he has already condemned in, your, in his word. And so not that any of us are perfect, but if your life is a series of transgressions, willful disobedience, don't expect your prayer life to be powerful. There's got to be a degree of obedience. And the Word tells us that very clearly in 1 John 3, 22 through 23. Motives. You ask not, or I'm sorry, you have not because you ask not, and yet you ask and do not receive because you ask with selfish motives that you may spend it on yourself. You know, sometimes our motives are just funky. Lord, that guy, he just bugs me. Would you just kill him, Lord? And the Lord just goes, I love you, son, but I'm not going to answer that prayer. You know, silly illustration. But nonetheless, the Bible is very clear there in James chapter 4 that sometimes we ask and do not receive because our motives are wrong. And so if you want an effective prayer life, you've got to approach God with faith. Be walking in a degree of obedience, abiding in Him, not willfully transgressing daily. But, but a lifestyle of obeying. And, and let God refine your motives. Check your motives. And the last point there is, is we've got to pray according to the Lord's will. You're not going to make God do something that he doesn't want to do. You're not going to make God do something that's against his will or against his wisdom. You just won't. And we're told in 1 John chapter 5 that this is the confidence that we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, we have that thing for which we have asked. And Pastor G gave us an awesome sermon, an example of praying Scripture. And that's really the only time that I'm absolutely sure that I'm praying the will of God is when I'm praying the Word of God. Amen? And you remember that lesson where Pastor G taught us about praying Scripture and then you guys did it right here in the sanctuary? And so we remember in that lesson that we had that picture of Jesus going on the Temple Mount and overturning the tables of the money changers. Because there where the Lord wanted it to be a house of prayer, they had made it all sorts of other things. It was full of distraction and selfishness. And so we said, maybe the Lord's got to overturn some stuff in your heart. Some self-will. Some willful disobedience. Some ill motives or some unbelief. Now several weeks ago and take stock today. Do you have an effective prayer life through faith and obedience? Right motives in the Lord's will. If not, let the Lord overturn some of those things and cleanse your temple today. Oh, golly, number six. Lesson number six was on having an attitude of thanksgiving in prayer. It's just the right way to approach the Lord. Do you remember in Luke chapter uh, 17 when the ten lepers came to Jesus and they prayed to him and said, we want to be healed? Just turn the page backwards. It's right in front of you. Luke 17, starting in verse 11. And it came about while he was going on the way of Jerusalem that Jesus was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a certain village, and ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. There's a prayer and a good prayer. I've prayed it several times already today. Verse 14. 
And when Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And it came about that as they were going, they were cleansed or healed of their leprosy. Verse 15, now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at the feet of Jesus, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, were there not ten who were cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who turned back to give glory to God except for this foreigner? You see, the Lord just tripped out here. If, if I could use that phraseology. He, he, he just kind of tripped out and said, wait a minute. I just healed ten lepers and only one of them is turned back to say thanks? And there's a perfect picture of our wicked hearts. The Lord does so many wonderful things in our lives. We have so much to be thankful for. So much to be thankful for, and yet so seldom we just come before the Lord with thanksgiving and praise. And what we learned in that lesson is that that's the, the modus operandi for prayer. We are always to approach him with an attitude of gratitude and thankfulness. In the Old Testament, there were certain men who were assigned that. When the congregation would get together, their assignment was to start that congregational meeting by praising and thanking the Lord. And there wasn't to really be any prayer or requests or petitions until the Lord had been thanked and praised for who he was and what he had done. And so it is to be in our prayer lives. We're told in Colossians 4.2, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And Philippians 4.6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so you might say, I don't, I don't really know how to pray. Well, here's what you do. You just get alone or with a group of people, whatever the context is, and you just start to thank the Lord. That's the first step. Lord, thank you that I can walk. I mean, what, right? Lord, thank you that my body works. Thank you that I'm able to breathe right now. Thank you that I have life. Thank you that I can see. Thank you that I could hear and taste and feel and touch. You, you didn't come out of a lizard. Evolution didn't do that. That's the Lord that did that, man. Wake up. Lord, thank you that you made me this way. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the trees. Thank you for the ocean. Thank you for my beautiful wife. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for my singleness. Thank you for my grandkids. Thank you for my mom and my dad. Just start to thank the Lord. And then when you're done, say, Lord, I am truly thankful for those things. And, and you see, your heart will have changed. You came to the Lord all grumbling and complaining. Lord, it's not fair. I don't have him. They do, but I have But then if you approach him biblically, with praise and thanksgiving and an attitude of gratitude, by the time you're done thanking him for all those wonderful things that he's done and who he is, your heart is changing. You're like, Lord, I don't really need anything. I'm pretty much done now. Thanks. But if you do need anything, then let your request be made known to God, the Bible says. But you start with thanksgiving. The Lord is so good, he should be praised, and then we can pray and ask him for whatever we want. Amen? Oh, golly, number seven. Listening in prayer. This was a wonderful, a wonderful one. Remember, prayer is a conversation. Prayer is a conversation. We're to speak to the Lord, and then we're to let the Lord speak to us. And you need to know that he wants to speak to you. He wants to speak to you through his word. He wants to speak to you through other people. And he wants to speak to you directly, prophetically, we might call it. And we talked about, you might go back and, and listen to that one again. We, we talked about what that looks like. We talked about sometimes how it looks when the Holy Spirit is leading you, guiding you, directing you, speaking to you. You've got to know that God wants to talk to you. The Bible says he's numbered the hairs upon your head. He knows when a little sparrow falls from its nest, Jesus said, and you are infinitely more important than a, uh, a sparrow. And so he wants to speak to you and he wants to guide you in your daily life. But so often we just don't listen. We turn on the radio. We pick up the cell phone. We turn on the TV. We look at the magazine. We just fill up our life with all this noise. And I'll tell you what, it's satanic. Because I think if we would just get quiet before the Lord, we would hear from the living God and our lives would be changed. But we just fill it up with noise all the time. He wants to speak to us. 
What keeps us from that is sometimes we just don't believe that he's able. We don't take the time to listen, or we don't know how to listen, or we don't position ourselves to hear from God. And you remember in that lesson, we talked about Samuel. Samuel's just a little kid, and the Lord spoke to him because he was positioned to hear from the Lord. And we had five simple points there. Samuel is a child. We're called to have childlike faith, a simple faith in God that positions us to hear from him. Samuel is a worshiper. We're to approach the Lord because he's glorious and wonderful, and we're to be worshipers around his throne that positions us to hear. Samuel is set apart, simply meaning if the Lord would speak, he would obey. He considered himself to be a servant of God. If the attitude in your heart is, I'm going to do what I want to do no matter what, don't expect the Lord to tell you what to do. I mean, you've got to have an attitude This is Lord, I'm submitted to you. Guide me and lead me. You understand that? And when you set yourself apart as a servant, well, well, then your master will give you direction. Samuel was quiet and still. No brainer. And Samuel was near to the Holy of Holies. That place during that time in history where the presence of God was. Listen to me. You having a hard time hearing from God? Get yourself into the presence of God. Here's how Jesus said it. Jesus said this to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. The Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Are you looking for God and God's righteousness in a particular situation and you don't seem to be able to hear him? Just stop all your business and all your bugging. Worship the Lord. Marinate in his presence. And he'll find you, Jesus said in John chapter 4. And he'll come and speak to you. The Lord is so good to do that. Number eight, this is the last one. Did I say we had nine? I was wrong. We only had eight. Aren't you surprised and excited? (laughs) Number eight, the last lesson that we've had is prayer and fasting. That was a wonderful one. That was an awesome one. So many of us fasted that week. And man, there's a brother that comes to this church and he's got diabetes. And he's got like gnarly diabetes. And, and so he's never been able to fast in his whole life. And he came to me after that lesson. And he said, Britt, I want to fast. I believe the Lord would have me do it. I just need him to take care of my physiological stuff for the whole day because I'm a diabetic, you know. If I, don't, if I don't eat, I'll like die. And so he said, if the Lord will just take care of my body, I want to fast and seek him spiritually. And so I just prayed for him and said, Lord, just do it. And he called me later that week. He said, man, I fasted an entire day. I've never done that in my whole life. And I feel awesome physically and spiritually. I mean, do you believe the word of God? When you hear a sermon, you just go home and go, okay, let's watch a movie and eat some food. Not that that's wrong. That's cool. Do that. But, but first say, okay, Lord, how should I apply your word this week? And we just learned simple things about fasting. It's setting, a time, it's setting apart extra time to pray and seek the Lord. It cultivates humility and dependence upon God. When we fast, we deny the flesh and we feed the spiritual. We deny the carnal man and we feed the spiritual man. That's a reversal. Because usually your flesh gets whatever it wants. But when we fast, we say, flesh, you don't get what you want. And spiritual man, I'm going to build you up. Because of that, there comes a heightened spiritual alertness. And through that comes an increased spiritual strength, power, and effectiveness. Do you remember we heard the testimony the week after? That that gal brought that guy to church who was not a believer. And you know when you bring a non-Christian to church, and you just want the sermon to be perfect. You know what I mean? You know what I should say. And you're like, man, should I call him? It's Saturday night, 10 o'clock. This guy's coming to church. Should I call him and tell him what would be perfect to say for this guy? And you bring the person to church, and I'm teaching on fasting. And you're like, Lord, what's he doing? Lord, stop him. Stop him. I brought this non-believer. He needs to just, just, preach, just preach the gospel, you idiot. Just, just tell him about Jesus. Why this fasting thing? He's not going to understand it. And he doesn't care. That's weird to him. Don't be weird, Britt. Please don't be weird today. I know that's what you do. I've been there. But, you know, I taught on fasting. She had this non-Christian and she was just bummed the whole time. She confessed, just going, oh my gosh. And afterwards, she even told him, sorry, it's not normally like that. I mean. <laughs> and this guy was from out of town, and he goes home, 
And he's not a Christian, mind you. He goes home and he remembers the sermon. He goes, I'm going to try this thing fasting. I'm going to try to draw near to God and I'm going to give this a shot. And this non-Christian, he fasts and the man gets saved. And that's just such an awesome testimony. And, you know, he called her up and her jaw just hit the floor. And that, that ought to be just such a kick for Christians, you know. The non-Christians hear the sermon. They fast and stuff happens. The Christians hear the sermon and they don't do anything. <laughs> Hello. The Lord is so good. Man, if we would apply these things that we've learned about prayer, if you would just be stirred up by way of remembrance today, because guess what? We're going to go deeper, church. I mean, we haven't even talked about praying in the Spirit. We haven't even talked about the Lord's Prayer. We haven't even talked about praying in tongues. I mean, we ain't talked about nothing yet. We're going to go deeper. There's going to be more. But it's so responsible to, to take stock of what the Lord has already shown us, make application, walk in it, and then say, okay, Lord, now more. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for being so good. Thank you for being so awesome. Thank you for this sweet work that you're doing in our midst, teaching us about prayer. It just means you, you want to commune with us more. You want us to draw near to you. You want us to fall more in love with you. Thank you for it, Lord. We just pray together that you would have your way in our church. We would truly learn about prayer. Thank you for what you've taught us. Holy Spirit, anything that I missed today, would you remind us of? Would you really stir us up? And Holy Spirit, Fan this flame of prayer that's in our church right now. Fan it, Holy Spirit. Make it a fire. Make it a radical fire in this church. Holy Spirit, would you remind us when Tuesday comes around at 6 a.m. to come and pray together? Wednesday morning for the men to come and pray. Wednesday at 6 that we'd come and pray for the youth. Wednesday at 7 that we'd come and pray for the nations. Thursday at 6 a.m. that we'd come and pray for this nation. I mean, Holy Spirit, we have alarm clocks, but you're better. Would you just remind us and stir us up and get us so amped to talk to you and to hear from you and to see you transform our lives and the lives around us. Thank you for being so good that you would call us into this partnership. We love you, Lord. You're awesome.